Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized today's event. I'd like to welcome our uh, authors today, uh, Michael Heller and uh, Jim Salzman. And uh, they've written a book called Mine, and uh, you won't believe how entertaining they made property law. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm extremely impressed. I, I've taken property law myself. So, so many issues have been influenced by the way we make these decisions. And what's very interesting is we really do get to set the rules ourselves. And although it seems like we haven't done it because most of these things are just ancient habits uh, in a way, uh, but we did make it all up. And uh, you, you, you both make really good arguments for how we can uh, adjust the dimmer, as you called it, uh, between, between the two extremes. So we'll start with the, this Garden of Eden reference that you had. I, I thought that was really great. You know, you had God saying about the tree of knowledge, it's mine. So do you want to explain that? <laughs> so, um, and actually, let me, um, the, uh, the Garden of Eden story um, is really premised on ownership, even though we don't think about it that way, right? So, you know, imagine the scene, right? God basically says to Adam and Eve, and Eve you know, welcome, make yourself at home, act like you own the place. Um, anything's yours except, you see that tree over there? See that fruit? Don't touch it. It's mine, right? And what do they do? Uh, they, they pluck the fruit. Uh, and at that point, it's not just ownership because it's theft. It's ownership because it's trespassing, right? What happens immediately after that is essentially they're evicted. And the archangel Michael is put there with a flaming sword saying, you know, don't, I'm not just going to change the locks. You know, don't come back. I'm going to have Archangel Michael here. The thing that's interesting, though, also, is if you think about other, the other great creation myth of Western civilization, uh, and that's Prometheus, right, the origin of mm -hmm. Greek civilization, it's the same ownership story, right? He is taking something that's not his. He steals fire from the gods and gives it to people. And neither creation myth makes any sense unless you think about ownership. So uh, Archangel Michael, I mean, Michael, um... Did you allow? Did you allow Jim to put this in? <laughs> because basically, you're comparing you're comparing God uh, to a two year old, saying it's mine, it's mine. You know. It's well, it is amazing that that two year olds use these same simple stories that you see in the Bible and you see in Greek mythology, and it's the same simple stories that you see with you know all through our daily lives today as we you know walk down the street as we engage with businesses and governments. It turns out that in every culture in the world. For all of history, there's just this very small handful of simple stories that everyone uses to claim everything, from the Garden of Eden to the reclining wedge on an airplane seat. So we, we won't talk too much about the other favorite word of two-year-olds, which is no, because we're, try, we're trying to get everybody to agree on something here. So we'll talk all about two-year-olds and mine. So uh, who would like to describe the, the six different uh, uh, stories that we tell. Go ahead. So, so let me give you actually an example from the playground. So we were talking a, a minute ago about, about kids um, saying mine. It's actually one of the first words that kids learn. It's true in every culture. That's one of the first words. You know, Noah's up there. Ball turns out to be really important in almost every culture, mama, papa. But mine is right up there in that list. So I actually was, I took my kids when they were small to the playground. And there was a fight that I remember that actually helped spark this book, which is my, my daughter and son fighting over a little red shovel. And my daughter said, you know, it's mine. I had it first. My son said, no, it's mine. I'm holding on to it. That's two of the six stories you're asking about. I'm holding on to it as possession, as nine-tenths of the law. I had it first. You know, it was first come, first served. Um, I worked for it. That's a third one. You know, labor. You reap what you sow. Fourth one is it's attached to something mine. When you press that little button on the airplane seat and lean back, you say that space is mine because it's attached to my seat. So it's first, possession, labor. I worked for it, attachment. 
self-ownership. It's mine because it comes from my body. It's my DNA. It's my genetic material. It's my clickstream online. And the last one, number six, is family. It's mine because I'm in the family. Well, I thought it was, uh, we're going to jump to the, jump around a little bit, uh, not just go chapter by chapter, because um, I thought it was fascinating, the whole issue of making this um, part of your body stuff, your ownership. And uh, you have two great stories about uh, human beings whose bodies created billions of dollars of wealth in, in medicine um, and really didn't get anything for it. It wasn't their property anymore. And so, and there's legal issues around that. And there's also a practical one. So, Sure. I, I can take that. So many of you of the folks who are watching this will be familiar with Rebecca Skloot's fabulous book, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. And that's basically about her. Her cell line basically was used by researchers at Johns Hopkins to develop all kinds of medical, medical advances. We talk a little bit about that. We spend most of our time in the book um, talking about the case of uh, this guy called um, Moore, who was a patient uh, at UCLA. Um, and the doctor, basically, when he was treating him for a, a form of cancer, he realized that Moore had the cell line that, that um, basically overproduced a particular substance that was valuable. Uh, but the doctor didn't tell Moore this. And he had him basically keep coming to UCLA for years for treatment. Uh, and Moore got a little suspicious one time. First of all, he, he was being put up in very nice hotels. Um, and <laughs> that, that was a tip off. Um, but also he had him sign this form, uh, basically sort of giving everything away. And, and Moore just thought that was weird if he's coming down for a treatment. And so he basically looks into it. And it turns out that the doctor had been paid a lot of money and stood to make much more because he basically had, had taken Moore's cell line and was using it to produce these, these, valuable, these valuable substances. And so the case went all the way up to the California Supreme Court. Um, and it's a classic example of these sort of competing stories that Michael was talking about, right? Mm -hmm. So Moore basically says self-ownership. It's, it's my cell line. How can I possibly not own that? I mean, how is that even conceivable? Mm -hmm. And the doctor in UCLA in this case basically said, look, you abandoned it. Once it's outside your body, it's just like garbage on the street. And mm -hmm. think of all the effort it took from the doctor to realize it was important and to isolate the cell line. So we've got self-ownership versus labor. Goes up to the California Supreme Court uh, and the UCLA, UCLA lawyers essentially persuade the court that if you're going to have advances in medical research, you cannot have self-ownership for these cell lines because they say you're gonna do individual negotiations and you know research will shut down. Um, and the, the, the judges are, are persuaded. In, in, in the book, we criticize that. Uh, Michael, if you mm -hmm. want to take over there. Well, these, these issues come up. It's not just those sort of strange and random surgeries where it happens that you have a billion-dollar spleen that happened with more. So think about today if you, if you um, swab your cheek to send in a genetic sample to 23andMe, which you know, a lot of us have done. Um, it turns out the reason it's so cheap uh, to do that swab is because you're not actually the consumer in that transaction. It feels like you are. But you're actually the product. What 23andMe is doing is they are assembling all those genetic um, samples into one huge database. They're also using uh, the labor story. They're saying our labor in assembling that database is what's creating the value. Uh, and you're saying, well, no, it comes from my body. It's self-ownership. So it's the same conflicting story. It's maybe not quite as um, the stakes aren't a billion dollars, but for your own personal data, the stakes feel pretty high. The most intimate data about your life, about your, your longevity, disposition to diseases, is all being sold to insurance companies to set rates, to pharmaceutical companies to de develop drugs. And most people don't even realize that they're in the middle of an ownership battle uh, when they swab their cheek. Uh, so anytime a new resource exists, um, like uh, genetic data, there's a, a mad rush. And there's a wild west very much right now in genetic data. And every one of us is part of that. Even if you don't send in a sample 
uh, most of us can be individually identified today by samples that somebody else in our family has sent in. Mm -hmm. And you, this is fairly similar to the question about all the uh, personal data about, you know, now, now everyone who's watching the show, uh, there's that data is there. Everyone knows that the people who watch the show must have some interest in legal issues, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and all that is compiled. And that's just another area of, of, of it. And there's voting. Uh, uh, there's so many different things that, that the information is out there and people are compiling it and using it for big data. What's the kind of legal ownership property issue when it's compiled and it loses its individuality and becomes just this, you know, they, they, they say, we well, won't use your individual part. I mean, obviously on the computers they do, but. Well, when you, when I go and buy a ticket to fly to Chicago for the weekend, I haven't done that in a year, but when I used to, for the next week or two afterwards, I get the, you know, ads all around the internet saying, you know, go to this hotel, stay at this restaurant in Chicago. So uh, big, the, the tech companies are tracking um, everywhere you go online. That's, that's called your click stream. It's your record of your likes and looks. And it's actually far more detailed than just what you click on. They look at how long you hover there. And they also can cross-reference that uh, more and more with other kinds of records, your Fitbit record, uh, your uh, location data from your cell phone. Uh, the level of detail would absolutely stagger you if you knew how much information was individually compiled and known about you as you move around, around online. The, they, know, they know that when you're going to get sick often uh, before you do from searches uh, that you make. It's actually quite remarkable, the ability to track disease uh, prospectively. Um, so all of that data is very much up for grabs, just like genetic data. Um, and we don't know today who owns it. So the, we talk about this often in terms of privacy, when privacy is being invaded. And in some places in the European Union, and actually in California, where many of your members are, um, California has a recent data privacy law that lets you opt out of some of this tracking. But what it doesn't let you do is say, I want to opt in if you pay me. Let's you say no, but it doesn't let you say yes uh, if you feel like it's beneficial to you to be part of, um, uh, you know, part of that system and get paid for it. So that option doesn't really exist. And, and you think it should? Absolutely. You know, one of the things about ownership is that it's always a design choice. It feels like it's just natural. You click around and, you know, it's the price you pay for using the Internet. But it's absolutely not the case. It's, a it's an engineering choice about how we design the society that we want to live in and, and what we, and what we uh, value. And if we don't put a price on it, um, the, the, uh, if, if it seems to be free, uh, you really have to always wonder, like, well, who, who actually is taking control of that data? And it turns out to be an unbelievably detailed uh, dossier on each of us um, uh, that gets marketed for different kinds of um, uh, advertising purposes. And George, one of the points that, that Michael's making is one of the key, the key uh, messages of the book, which is ownership is always up for grabs. Even mm -hmm. when there are rules, those rules can be contested, but particularly the examples we've talked about so far, right? Your clickstream, for example, uh, your cell line outside the body until, until those, those, um, those decisions. Uh, when there is a, a, a technology creates uh, value uh, in a resource, it becomes, it becomes basically scarce and valued, people want it. And we assume that there are rules for that. You said, well, who owns it? Uh, mm -hmm. It turns out we don't know, right? There's a battle going on. And because it's uncertain, this is a strategy we talk about called uh, strategic ambiguity, right? Uh, when, mm -hmm. it's, when, uh, when ownership is uncertain, those who know enough basically take it, whether it's actually theirs or not. And we don't know enough to say, wait a minute, uh, you know, it's, it's mine. You, you told a lot of stories of this uh, intentional strategic ambiguity uh, that, that the stores use, like uh, why Apple stores are the way they are. Why don't, why don't you tell about that? Why, why, do, why do they have this open floor plan and invite everybody in and all that kind of stuff? 
very interesting. So there's some very famous uh, psychology experiments um, done about, I guess, 30 years ago now um, by Hahnemann and, and Thaler. And they basically, the setup was um, there are two groups, right? One group is given a generic mug or candy bar or whatever. The, the famous experiment was with a mug, but there have been hundreds of experiments done since then. Um, one group is, is given the mug. Another group is shown the mug. And the group that's given the mug essentially is, is asked, um, how much would you have to be paid to part with the mug? What's its value? The other group is asked the same question. What's the value of this mug? You would think both groups would say it's identical, right? It's just this generic mug. And yet the group that was given the mug values it twice as much, if not more, right? Mm -hmm. And they call this the endowment effect. And the, the finding, and again, it's been reproduced in all kinds of different situations, is that once you physically possess something, its value to you goes up because it's this sense of loss, right? I'm not, I'm not just giving up a generic coffee mug. It's my mug. So mm -hmm. Apple takes advantage of this, the sort of um, random chaos that you see in Apple stores actually uh, is intended to give the, the customers plenty of time to play with the cool gadgets. And over mm -hmm. time, you know, this iPad starts to feel like my iPad and the crazy mm -hmm. high price doesn't seem so crazy high, but it's not just Apple, right? Think about the efforts that car dealers make to, to get you to do a test drive uh, or mm -hmm. to try on clothes in a store um, or the try it out. And if you don't like it, you can return it. All of those are intended to trigger our endowment effects so that the actual value of the good goes up in our minds. Well, you know, we saw this future coming uh, when Clarence Thomas was up for uh, the Supreme Court uh, because uh, they pulled out his records of which movies he had rented from the video store. And I mean, that was one thing. Um, but if you think about it from what you were saying earlier, Michael, uh, with credit card records, you know, and most people buy uh, their food at the grocery store with that, the, the health uh, insurance places would have a pretty good idea about how you eat, and how well you eat, what you eat, if, they, if that was compiled in some way for them. Uh, among many other details that they have. Yeah, so you know your, your location data, um, what you eat, um, how you exercise, um, or, and then the, the power really comes from integrating these databases um, and then identifying uh, who wants to sell you what. Um, it's really quite a su surprising change. Moving from, part of what's so powerful about this is our brains evolved um, in thinking about possession, one of the stories we've been talking about, in a very physical, tangible world. So it also all traces back to animal territoriality, then becomes the human notion of possession. Um, all those instincts that are so powerful that sort of m drive us through our day uh, don't actually translate very well into our online lives. We still bring with us those animal instincts, uh, but it turns out that there, it's possible to adjust what ownership means online in ways that people haven't really caught up with. You have to have some simple heuristics, some simple devices for thinking about what ownership means. You sort of think of it as an on-off switch. I possess it or I don't. So that managed chaos in the Apple store is triggering that possession instinct, but it's also the little online shopping cart on Amazon or the buy now button is also triggering that possession instinct. And it turns out that online, uh, that buy now button doesn't mean what people think it means. It's interesting uh, that with this much information, it seems like it's going to put a big crimp on, on crime, actually, because they're going, to, they're going to know who the possible criminals are by they have to have been there. Well, if you remember the minority report where there's precognition, where they sort of think ahead to what uh, with Tom Cruise, what, what crime is going to be. Here's the thing. Even in the um, minority report, even in the Tom Cruise movie, there's still crime. Like criminals are actually pretty creative. We're very creative about ownership. And criminals, it turns out, are very creative about acquiring ownership. This goes back to our Adam and Eve story, and I guarantee it will be true in the future as well. <laughs>
<laughs> I think that's that's a reliable thing. We'll, we we can bet on that. <laughs> uh, so how about your ownership? There's a term. Let's see. Uh, ownership gridlock. Do you have ownership rights to the to the term ownership gridlock? I, you know, if I had, if someone paid me a nickel for every time that term got used, I I wouldn't. You know, I, would, I would still be here. I love doing this, um, but I would be. I'd have a I'd have a nicer summer house. Um, you know, <laughs> uh, so so actually, ownership. Let me explain what, what's ownership gridlock. Um, about 25 years ago, I discovered a, a, one of the a phenomenon about ownership that hadn't previously been noticed. So we're all familiar. Like, if there's too few ownership rights, if anybody can put pollution into the air, we get too much pollution. If anybody can take fish out of the water, we get too much uh, overfishing. Fish go extinct. So too few property rights in a commons in a shared resource lead to overuse and destruction of the resource. That's called the tragedy of the commons. And what I discovered is there's an, an exactly equal and opposite, but not previously noticed phenomenon, which is a tragedy of the anti-commons. Too many owners can lead to very costly underuse of scarce resources. So let me give you very, one very concrete example. Um, it used to be that when scientists did very basic medical research, the way they got rewarded was to have their reputation went up. They might get a prize. They would get published something. They would get tenure. But all that basic knowledge about how the body works was, in, was available for the public. They, they published that. Starting around 1980 in America, we shifted the ability to own very basic knowledge about science, uh, what's called upstream knowledge, the knowledge about basic medical um, discoveries and devices and methods. Um, so we got many, many patents. That was the start of the biotech revolution. But that large increase in patents, that large increase in ownership actually led to fewer drugs that actually treat disease ending up in bottles, fewer pills that save lives. Why? Because the companies that actually put pills in bottles, now instead of having all the basic research that they needed available from university laboratories, now each of those separate pieces was separately owned uh, by some patent owner. It's like trying to get from you know, one town to another on a river and there's different, uh, road, uh, different toll booths uh, all the way down the river and each one is operated by a separate um, company, in this case, a separate patent holder. The negotiations became impossible, and more property rights paradoxically led to less life-saving innovation. That's ownership gridlock, and it turns out to be a phenomenon that is very widespread among a modern high-tech economy, where most of what we, most of how we innovate, is around assembling pieces of uh, patents into a new invention, or pieces of copyright into a documentary. Or um, uh, so it turns out that today. Um, at the frontier of innovation, we have a lot more blockage from having too many property rights rather than from having too few. Sort of like uh, the other extreme from piracy. You know, when you were saying that, I was thinking of the Rhine River or, or, or the Mediterranean when the pirates ran it. I mean, it, it essentially, or along the Silk Road, if there's too many pirates, nobody trades along the route anymore. No, and, and too many patent owners has the same exact function as too many pirates because each one gets to have their ransom along the path to drug development or to, um, to rap music. Actually, the same thing happened to rap music changed radically because of copyright gridlock. Documentary films have been affected. Um, a lot of our culture has been lost um, to gridlock in, uh, because of too much copyright protection as opposed to too much patent protection. That's a very good example for, I mean, you say that there's always these two extremes in property, right? And you're always arguing that somewhere, set the dimmer somewhere in between those two things. You know. Yeah, that's one of our, you know, it's one of the things we really try to get across to people is that our intuition, the way our sort of animal instincts about property is this, it's either mine or it's not mine. And if you're a bear, that's actually really valuable to know. Is this my territory or am I going to get eaten? Um, and that's actually, we, and we still think about ownership that way. It's like a light switch. It's turned on or off. But in the modern economy, thinking of it like a dimmer, where you want to set it at just the right amount, 
like to go back to our earlier story to protect John Moore and 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 his um, his bodily integrity and to protect the scientists at UCLA who are trying to develop a drug. How do you set property rights so both of them can get reward instead of one or the other? And that dimmer switch is actually a very powerful image for thinking about ownership today. Yeah, I, I thought it was it was a great image. And Jim, uh, you did some work on the New York uh, City watershed, right? And and used used this idea. So I, I thought that was fascinating. I mean. I didn't realize that, that they had to do that in order to keep the, the uh, water tasting good, but it's, uh, it, it's so applicable to so many climate things now. So why don't you tell the story about that? Sure. So those of you who travel to New York City realize that New Yorkers are not a humble, a humble bunch. Uh, you know, the greatest theater, the greatest buildings, the greatest, you name it. One of the things they say is the greatest is their tap water. And uh, as someone who grew up in Boston, it pains me to say this, but they're right. Uh, the New York City tap water is is the best in the country. They routinely win blind taste tests against bottled water. So why is that? Um, well, for one thing, it's because the water is not from New York City. Right? The water comes from about 100 miles away in the Catskills and Delaware watershed. Um, and it's, it's, it's been like that for over a century. But there was a problem. In the late 1980s, the water started getting polluted and degraded. And the reason is that there was increasing development and land pressures in those in those watersheds. And so New York basically planned to build a multi-billion dollar treatment plant uh, to treat the water. New York, the water basically is untreated. They take it from the Catskills in Delaware, a little chlorine filter to keep out the dead bodies, but that's about it. Then it just goes into the, into the taps. Um, and they were set to spend billions of dollars on this plant. And so a guy called Al Appleton, uh, mm -hmm. who's the head of water for New York, this you know, uh, official basically said, wait a minute. And he basically thought about this in terms of ownership. And what he realized was, um, we, we uh, landowners provide a lot of benefits coming from their land that we benefit from. So think of someone who owns a wetland, right? So the wetland basically provides habitat for fish and for birds. It purifies water as it goes through. It provides a buffer against flooding. But the person who owns the wetland actually can't get uh, rewarded for any of those benefits, right? They're all mm -hmm. sort of public. And so don't be surprised that wetlands have low real estate value and they get paved mm -hmm. over and drained. And so what Al basically said is he worked off this attachment notion that we talked about earlier. It's mine because it's attached to something I own. And he basically used what we call as if ownership. So he basically went to the landowners in the, in the, in the watershed and he said, look, let's act as if you own these benefits. You're purifying the water for us. We'd like to pay you for that. All right, so we're going to act as if you own the benefits coming from your land. And so they basically they raised a bond, a green bond of $600 million dollars. Uh, and they basically paid the, the, the landowners for this. And the EPA has waived the requirement to build a treatment plant now for almost 30 years. Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful example of investing in green infrastructure instead of gray infrastructure for purely mm -hmm. financial terms. And it's all because of ownership engineering. It's because Appleton had the insight to realize that if you shift how things can be owned, practically speaking, you're going to change the behavior of the landowners. I thought it was interesting in your book that China is actually doing uh, some things. You're, you advise uh, people on, and, and governments on this around the world and, and how to use it. And when we think of China, we don't think of them as, as uh, uh, advanced when it comes to trying to stop pollution. But, you know, that's just a popular notion. And they actually do work on a lot of those areas because I've done it myself. But your story was very interesting. Yeah. Uh, so if, if we thought that, we'd be wrong. Now, you know, I want to be clear. China's got enormous pollution problems. Right. Um, but you know they, they basically started focusing on that. Um, mm -hmm. And actually, I'm, I, this morning, literally, I was sending in a report. I'm working for the Asian Development Bank. 
uh, on mm. this issue right now for China. And the, the, the issue they're facing is they have a terrible flooding in past years. They're trying to encourage landowners to basically prevent erosion by putting in trees and vegetation. And they basically are saying to the landowners, we're going to pay you for the service of erosion control and flood mm -hmm. protection. And we're going to act as though you own this benefit that you're providing us. And the strategy is called Payments for Ecosystem Services. And you find it now all over the world. I did a, I did a paper for Nature a few years ago that found there are over 500 programs around the world that take this approach and, and over $50 billion uh, mm -hmm. it, it, you know, change hands every year. And the irony of this is that we can talk about other examples later, but the irony is in order to protect the environment, arguably there's too little ownership and we need more ownership. So, so if I can, mm -hmm. I can just pivot to climate change because it sort of fits in, fits in from this. So one of the big challenges to climate change is deforestation, right? Both because trees mm -hmm. suck in carbon dioxide and when you burn trees, they release carbon dioxide. So losing forests is a double whammy in terms of climate change. And so the challenge is how do you make trees worth more standing than cut down? And one of the, one of the strategies is, is to do the same thing Al Appleton did uh, in New York City, same thing the Chinese are doing, and that is to basically go to the landholders and the, and the states in the Amazon and to say, we're going to treat you as if you owned the carbon that, you are that your plants are sucking in. And the mm -hmm. more you can do that, the, 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 the greater you reduce deforestation, we'll pay you more. Uh, and mm -hmm. that's it. The, 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 the strategy is called RED, reduced emissions from, from um, deforestation and land degradation. And it really is one of the cutting edge instruments right now being used to battle climate change. And it's all premised on this idea of as if ownership. Is it made much progress? Because anyway, everyone's talking about how much of the Amazon disappears on a yearly basis. Is it slowing it down? I, un I understand it hasn't reversed it though. It certainly has not reversed it, right? Deforestation yeah. is a very complicated phenomenon. Uh, I think it has slowed it down. Um, there, there are questions, though, about uh, the, the more complicated about red in terms of who's going to pay for this, right? So yeah. these are benefits that we all benefit from, but you know, if you get something for free, it's kind of hard to pony up for it, right? And so to yeah. date, it mostly has been Norway. Nor I was going to say you, you mentioned Norway, yeah. Yeah, that, that's been yeah. paying for this. That's right. Michael, there's another another big land issue uh, that you cover in the book um, about farms. Uh, that are owned by families, small owned farms, and what, what that's happened over the years and how, how people have lost their farms. We've heard about, the, um, I grew up in the Midwest, heard how family farms are lost, but you had a very interesting example of all that. Well, we've talked about a number of our different basic ownership stories, first in time, possession, attachment, our bodies, self-ownership. Um, uh, the one you're raising now is, um, is, the, is about family ownership. And it turns out that in America, we actually have two uh, quite different systems for how uh, ownership gets passed on uh, from generation to generation. So there's one system, which I'll come, maybe we can talk about later, for super rich people, not, not for the one percenters, but for the one percent of the one percenters. Um, places, uh, states like South Dakota um, have become the world's leading money haven. They actually crush um, Switzerland and Cayman Islands. If you're super rich, you already know this. Um, but that's the system for the super rich. For the rest of us, there's a different and much harsher system. And the harshness of it becomes really apparent for very poor people. Um, so the, the story that you're asking about has to do with African-American land ownership um, in this country. One of the really great benefits of, um, uh, one of the first and most tangible benefits for freed slaves was the ability in America for the first time really to own land. So after the Civil War, 
Um, that became like the driving force for many African-American families from 1870 till 1920. A million African-American families uh, became landowners, most, mostly in the American South. Uh, since then, um, in the last hundred years, exactly, uh, African-American land ownership in this country has dropped by 98%, 98%. And it's, you know, partially for reasons you would, that would not surprise, surprise you, which is, you know, a lot of racist violence and discrimination uh, that African-American families suffered in the South trying to hold on to their land. But that's only a, really a part of the story. A lot of the story is driven by these hidden uh, workings of the American system of ownership. So typically, uh, black uh, farmers were worried about uh, writing wills. The local lawyer was usually a white lawyer. They didn't trust them for good reason. So they died without a will. And in America, if you die without a will, your property is split among your, your heirs, uh, usually mostly your children. So in one generation, there might be a few kids, in two, more, in three, more. It grows exponentially. So over a handful of generations, you would have dozens or hundreds of owners of a single family farm. Uh, and if any of you have tried to like manage anything with more than a few people, that's very hard to do, you know. Uh, so, um, so you're very familiar with this problem. You're very familiar. I mean, if you have a summer house that you've, you know, that you're trying to manage with your siblings, it gets you can, maybe you and your siblings can do it, but the grandkids can't. So that splitting of ownership um, is very hard to manage. And what it, one of the features of it is that any one of those fractional owners, any one of those heirs, the with the one one hundredth share, they can force a sale of the family farm as a whole. They can do what's called partitioning, separating that joint ownership, we all own the farm together, into separate pieces. And the way that actually happens uh, in the American South is that usually that white lawyer who didn't write the will goes and finds one of those heirs. They're often people who've moved away, migrated to Chicago, and buys that small fractional share for, for basically nothing, 100 bucks. Goes back down to that county in Mississippi or Georgia, and then forces a sale of the farm as a whole. It's a cash sale on the courthouse steps. For, and that lawyer ends up with the farm for a very low ball price. Uh, the family can't organize. There's 100 of them, and they have to pay cash on the day of the auction. So they can't even bid usually on the sales. And that mechanism, that sort of very harsh uh, American law in the American South, it's, it's true everywhere, but, but the playing out of it has been in the South, has led to uh, the most staggering wealth destruction for African Americans over the last century. You sort of wonder about racial wealth gaps. This is actually a big piece of it. It's not just the racist discrimination and violence. It's also the hidden workings of the American law of ownership, where the poorest people are given the harshest scheme that we have for ownership. And this can be fixed. Um, actually, there's a bill in Congress right now, just introduced um, uh, in this session by Cory Booker, uh, that's meant to address precisely this issue, heirs' property, property where it's split among heirs, to create a mechanism where a family, if they do want to stay on the land, uh, they can... Uh, they can they can bid if they don't have the cash they can raise the cash over a period of time so they can actually bid equally uh, with uh, the white farmer the white lawyers who are trying to uh, kick them off their land. You also talked about maybe the, have some kind of rule about the fair market value being involved rather than than these courtroom. Yeah, so you know when you if, if listen if you buy and sell a house you use a real estate agent who's going to buy and sell it for you and their job is to get you a good price and the, and the way they get you a good price is to have an unhurried sale. Uh, where you find just the right buyer for, for your house. Um, if you had to sell on a particular day on the courthouse steps for ca a cash-only sale, like you see for foreclosure auctions um, on houses after the financial crisis and still today, uh, those prices are typically much different and much lower. They're technically fair market value. There was an auction, but the number is so is really really um, uh, painfully low. It's, it's, it's a major mechanism 
for destroying wealth, uh, particularly for African-American families in this country. Uh, I thought it was very fascinating because it showed that there was a totally different uh, element involved, the legal element to the destruction of the wealth. And it wasn't, you know, that they weren't taking care of the land or anything like that. It was just that the ownership kept getting split down. Um, you had a different story for Native Americans. We had, we had, you know, everybody has an idea from movies and everything that the Native Americans had a totally different idea about what property. We, they didn't think that they owned the land and all that kind of stuff. But the big problem was not that difference, but uh, the uh, land rules that were put in place for them, sort of to protect them, at least theoretically. So, Well, you have to put, you have to put the word protect in quotation marks. Um, so uh, Amer so when the, U when, it, when the federal government mostly forced Native tribes onto reservations in the 1800s, um, there was a push in the late 1800s to basically force assimilation of Native peoples into the dominant white culture. And one of the ways they thought to do that, they felt that um, if land was owned collectively, people would uh, have a different, have the wrong relationship to land. And the solution was to have individual private property. And they felt that that would be a major uh, pathway for um, uh, basically just, uh, uh, ending uh, Native culture. They also prohibited teaching of Native languages. But, but the privatization of that land, of reservations, breaking up reservations into small separate farms, uh, was designed to bring Native Americans into white culture. It was also uh, once they gave a, a small piece to each to each uh, native uh, family, there'd be a lot of extra unallotted land, which they could then give to white settlers, so they could take much of the reservation back for white settlement as well. But that land that was given to native families was given uh, was given in a way that made it impossible for them uh, to sell it. It made it impossible for them even to pass it through a will to a single child. It had to be broken up among the heirs. Uh, so what that meant was native land uh, in America much of it, a lot of so-called allotted land, uh, was uh, fractionated to the point where very valuable uh, fields were completely unusable because you would have not just hundreds, but now in many cases, thousands or tens of thousands of tiny fractional owners where the cost of keeping track of those ownership shares dwarfed by orders of magnitude the value of the rents that were, com were coming in. This was a tr tremendous destruction of native, not just native culture, but native wealth as well as also both the Native example um, tragedy and the African-American land laws, those are both examples of ownership gridlock. Too many owners um, of a single farm are making it impossible to actually manage that farm uh, in a productive way. Yeah, I, I thought uh, there are even more details in the book, and it's just fascinating because it's not an angle that a lot of people have, even those who are paid attention to, to what's happened uh, to the wealth. And as you point out in the book, uh, home ownership, land ownership is one of the greatest sources uh, of not the richest families, but the but the middle class families of developing some kind of wealth uh, over over time for their family. Yeah, the, the biggest wealth builder in American history, it turns out to be the 30 year mortgage, this, the amortizing 30 year mortgage, where at the end of that 30 years, you actually own the house outright. That is most people's retirement account is, is their is their home. Who can afford it? Who can afford to buy into it? Uh, and, and it has uh, unintended consequences, like almost everybody likes inflation as a result. <laughs> Yeah, too too low inflation is actually costly for for, for a lot of for, for a certain group of uh, Americans. Right. So, uh, Jim, um, when we talk about the different uh, six different things, uh, we talked about attachment. So, what's your favorite example of of this attachment idea, um, and how how that should play out with the dimmer switch? Yeah. So, I'm an environmental guy. Uh, so, my my favorite example actually is groundwater. Um, mm -hmm. And so you would think uh, that because of attachment, uh, which basically says um, it's mine because it's attached to something, it's mine. 
that if you own the surface, right, this is your plot of land, uh, then as the, old, as the old Roman saying would go, you should own all the way from hell to heaven. Think of a searchlight, right, that goes up. Um, and uh, in fact, at the, at the dawn of aviation, at the age of aviation, actually landowners um, uh, try, to get, uh, try to get airlines um, to be found guilty of trespassing. Right, because the plan would be flying, flying over their property, and if you have that sort of absolutist view, um, that in fact is trespassing. The court said, no, 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 no. You know, there's a certain ceiling, of, of it, and it's not, it's not limited by the height of your ground-to-air missile. Right, they, there's a right, limit right, right. <laughs> to what you can control. Um, but what about underneath your property? Right. Um, so imagine, for example, that you uh, live in an area, say in Texas, um, and you've got a well, uh, and the neighbor next to you has a well also. Um, and that land is actually purchased by a bottled water company. And they bring mm -hmm. in, instead of the hand pump, they bring in this big diesel pump and they start pumping out all this water uh, to put in bottles and sell, sell elsewhere. We'll, we'll call it Ozarka water. Um, mm -hmm. And it turns out one day you go out and you drop your bucket in and instead of a splash, you hear a thud because mm -hmm. your water now is, is below the level of your well. Um, can they do that, right? It, it, is that theft? I mean, this was your water, and by them lowering the water table, they literally have sort of sucked your water um, over toward toward their property. Um, mm -hmm. And I mean, I assume your intuition is there's something wrong about that. Mm -hmm. um, not in Texas, right? In Texas, they they rely on something called the rule of capture, and basically, if you can take it, it's yours. And if it screws your neighbor as a result, that's too bad. Now, this obviously has, has terrible consequences because it basically gives everyone the incentive to use it as quickly as possible. Because if you don't take it, someone else will. That's the tragedy of the commons that Michael was referring to, referring mm -hmm. to earlier. Most other states um, have something called sort of reasonable use. But let's go to California, where a lot of your members, a lot of your members live. So in California, effectively, there was no regulation of groundwater, particularly in, in the ag in the ag sector along the Central Valley. The Central mm -hmm. Valley actually has subsided. Central Valley, if you go to Central Valley in the 1920s, it would be about literally 40 feet higher than it is today, which is a remarkable statistic. We, we, we've pumped out the equivalent of 40 feet of water from the Central Valley, and as a result, the land is compacted. It's subsided. Um, and, that's, and that's basically stayed that way, right? There, there, there was actually no regulation until 2016 in the, in the, in the, in the grips, the drought, people realized you know, we got it. We got to do something about this. And so, a law was passed. It's called Sigma. I won't go into details, but it basically tries to say, let's think about ownership engineering, and how we can think of groundwater differently, rather than this this basically wild animal that's running around. Whoever gets it, they own it. Let's think about ways to work as a large as a larger community. Um, that, to me, is an example of a dimmer switch, right? So mm -hmm. in Texas, the idea is, well, either you own the water. Or your neighbor owns the water, and Texas basically says the the, the on-off switch is whoever's got the water, it's theirs, right? If it mm -hmm. used to be under your property, too bad. That's not a smart way to think about about this this kind of resource. And the last thing I'll say before I before I turn it over to Michael is that um, when resources are plentiful, we tend to think of ownership as an on-off switch because we can. There's enough to go around. The mm -hmm. problem is that when plentiful resources become scarce. The, the rules that we use weren't designed for scarcity and they don't work well, right? So the rule in Texas works fine if you're digging these wells, you know, by, by hand and you've got a hand pump. They're terrible 
if you've got diesel pumps. Has have the uh, countries along the Tigris and the Euphrates called you yet about uh, trying to deal with this? Because they know they have a terrible issue uh, going all up into Turkey and, and who uses the water on the way down. Yeah. No. Um, I mean, that's a, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. No, I was saying this is this is an age-old conflict, right? I mean, yeah. think about the River Nile, right? One of the real flashpoints in the world right now is essentially between Ethiopia and Egypt. Ethiopia has built this big dam called the GERD, G-E-R-D dam. Uh, Egypt, you know, for millennia has controlled the flow of the Nile. Not anymore. Uh, and countries don't like to give up that kind of power. Uh, on a very small and, and, and technological scale, you told a great story uh, about a drone getting shot out of the, the sky. You want to tell that story? I thought that was hilarious. So, so this is the opposite. So, you know, one version of what's attached to my land, I mean, you know, the, the, the deed to your home is just a sheet of paper. It's flat. So anything else that you own um, besides the surface, up or down, is a choice. And it's a choice that changes over history. Like it used to be the case that people could hunt across your land. They didn't have to ask your permission. It wasn't trespassing. They were free to cross your land and take wild animals off of it. It was a choice after barbed wire to shift towards having an exclusion understanding, the no trespassing version of ownership in America. It's a very modern version. There, there, there was an older one, which was the, when the kings did it because the whole story of Robin Hood is dependent upon the king saying you can't take our deer. Absolutely, absolutely. So there was that, that there, there, there is there was the so-called royal prerogative uh, in, in England uh, that never didn't really translate into America. Um, you, you got to, you got to always like, you know, you know this, we're, we're, we're always facing an uphill battle as people who care about like who owns what and why. It's like the most important stuff. It's like what you get in the world, but people have a hard time Focusing on it. Anyway, so movie references are always good. But so anyway, so, so Jim talked down, like who owns the water or oil or fracking. But then it's the same problem going up. Jim talked about the limit on what's attached, which is airplanes. You can't shoot those down. But the new technology is drones. So can a drone uh, fly over your house? And that question, like any new technology, is absolutely up for grabs. So there was a case in Kentucky, actually, the aptly named Bullet County, where um, a guy named uh, William Meredith basically shot down the ground. It's a suburb it wasn't the kind of the country. This is a suburban backyard. Saw a drone fly over his house, took out a shotgun and blasted it out of the sky. He was arrested. He was super puzzled by him by being arrested. He said it was only number three uh, bird shot. That, that's not going to hurt anybody. If I had shot like a, you know, a 30 caliber, I can imagine. So his, his concern was that the ammo he was using wasn't, was not problematic. But for many of us, you know, shooting drones out of the sky, blasting drones out of the sky in a suburban neighborhood uh, is kind of worrying. Um, and his argument was that it was attached to his home. The land above was attached to his home. He said, it's just like somebody climbing over the fence. And you can understand the privacy concerns. Um, but this is, this is very much up for grabs. And the reason that this issue hasn't been settled uh, sort of just automatically in favor of someone like the landowner is that on this particular ownership conflict, there's a countervailing and extremely powerful set of interests that also have their own ownership story, which is Amazon, uh, Domino's Pizza, UPS, they're all trying to think about how do they do delivery drones. Um, so the droneways, the area above your house for um, delivering packages, turns out to be extremely valuable uh, space, a resource, uh, not just to have you be shielded from cameras in the sky, but also for companies that are trying to think about um, what is the future of delivery going to be in a post in a post carbon world where it's all electric, where we're not using uh, you know, delivery trucks for that. Um, and that's actually very much an open question, as it should be. Um, there's no natural or correct answer to how much 
should be attached to land. And we're fighting it out. It's, it's interesting because the uh, old version of that story is that uh, people worried about whether the mailman was the father. In this case, it's going to be whether the drone is taking pictures as it goes by when it's doing its delivery stuff. So um, it's, the, it's the 21st century version of probably something extremely old. Um, so um, there are other attachment issues that are fascinating too, which are um, that have to do with like surrogate mothers. And I, I, when, you know, I understand that all the other issues involved, but it was interesting to deal with it as a property issue. So. Well, attachment is, attachment is the most important ownership story that your listeners have never heard of. Like they know about first come, first serve. They know what it means to line up. And you know what possession is nine-tenths of the law means. And you know what my body and myself means. But attachment is omnipresent. It's how we are. If we're going to solve climate change, we're going to do it using attachment stories. If we're going to understand about how to do drone deliveries or not, whatever, all of those battles or fracking natural resource battles, those are all attachment stories. And one of the, for example, um, wind and solar as well. Those are attachment stories. Like, are those resources? The, 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 uh, the uh, solar, not the solar, but the wind turbines, you know, of course, uh, ruin things downstream for them. And so, so you know, where, where you place it, it's just like the oil thing in a different, everyone's sucking the water out or the oil out. Wind is super cool. People don't realize how cool wind is and the ownership conflicts that come up there. So you asked, just so sort of switching gears away yeah, from yeah, that. Yeah, I'm sorry. I went to another aggression. Yeah, so, but there's so much there. But, what's, but there's a new, you know, part of what's new about self-ownership is this notion of just of surrogacy where you where a couple that, I mean, for a couple usually, or a same-sex couple uh, that wants to have a third, um, um, a, a woman uh, carry their embryo to term. Um, and that, you know, the, the old traditional version of that was, was actually the first story in the Bible with um, Hagar uh, being the surrogate for Abraham and Sarah uh, um, when Ishmael is born. Um, but that, that, that version of surrogacy hasn't really, isn't really practiced so much today. But there is uh, with new IVF. Uh, I'm sorry, I like the way you guys mentioned that it, the problems caused by that surrogacy have not yet been solved. No, um, that's right. You know, it's, it's, it's Ishmael versus just, Isaac. Just to show you what we're getting into with this problem. Yeah, it's the great Abrahamic tradition sort of still in conflict in some ways. So, um, but, but today what we have is the possibility of gestational surrogacy with IVF where you have um, a genetically unrelated embryo to the woman who carries it. And it's only in the last couple of decades that has been possible uh, for this technology to create the ownership battles that, are, that raise the question, should um, it be possible to pay someone, to pay a woman, to basically rent her womb for nine months. Most people, most women who are surrogates, who do get paid, mostly do it for altruistic reasons. Um, and it's also a way to avoid, you know, it's also a way to get paid for the very, for the medical risk and for the, uh, the labor of laboring and carrying a child to term. So it's, an, so it's a, but, uh, and it's also very complicated morally and ethically to think about because um, you have multiple adults uh, uh, creating a child, um, so managing the sort of human, sort of managing that in a in a dignified and humane way is not easy, and it comes down to how we structure ownership around surrogacy. So, what is it, um, the, how do you protect the woman who is a surrogate? How do you protect the baby? Um, and how do you protect the rights and interests of the uh, of the intended parents? So that's an area where it's not surprising that people's intuitions will lead them to sort of an on off switch thinking. Um, but it's an area where the dimmer switch has actually been extremely helpful to create uh, modern uh, ownership around surrogacy that, that uh, allows people to, um, who want to be surrogates to do so in a safe way. So, for example, until just this year, until a month ago, it was illegal to be a gestational surrogate in New York. Uh, New, well, uh, fam, well, New York families that wanted to ha uh, 
have a, a, a gestational surrogate had to cross the river to New Jersey. It's still the case that in Illinois, it's okay, but you cross over to Michigan and it's illegal. So we have this sort of on-off switch approach. Um, but we're beginning to see more sort of fine-grained turning of the dimmer to basically figure out how do you protect each of the parties in a way that makes this a humane and legal and actually quite beautiful uh, way to use our bodies uh, to create um, to sort of create families for people who couldn't otherwise have them. Yeah, and it's not talked about as, as much, um, but there's another element to it for uh, the, the sperm donors, which is, you know, you, you, you sign away um, your rights to everything like that, but uh, you, you, that's, a, that's the first legal thing as part of the contract. Now, does that contract get held up? There was a, a contestant on one of the, the uh, singing shows the other day who clearly was not, maybe she was chosen more for this than for the singing, which was that she had 50 or so half uh, siblings because her father was a sperm donor um, and she had uh, um, parents, same-sex parents. And so she was now 20 years old and she had all these different siblings. And the father somehow was notified. They all, all the half siblings got together, probably use, using 23 or me. And then, uh, you know, contact him and they all had a party together. Um, so he got to meet, you know, 40, 50 of his kids, uh, which he, he just was a college donor. Um, and, and that's a, another thing. Now, he wasn't, didn't look like he was pushing any property rights there. Um, and, and obviously the contract probably helped him to not have paternity uh, payment rights. But uh, all those things are up for grabs, like you said. Uh, this could all be turned upside down by either someone hostile to the whole idea, you could use it as a strategy to destroy it, as, as you've mentioned a couple of your examples, or push in the other direction, something that they want to encourage and, and, and make it, uh, you know, some payments for all that. Now, most of, yeah, no, most of us aren't like hiring surrogates or shooting down drones, but that doesn't mean we aren't engaged in ownership issues all day long, every day. Like when you get in line for your latte in the morning and someone cuts around you with the app, that's an ownership issue. When you know, you're sharing your HBO password with a friend, it's actually theft, that's an ownership issue. HBO wants you to do it, but that's an... So these ownership issues come up all day long in the most mundane parts of our daily lives. I thought it was great that you explained why HBO wants you to steal. You, they probably ought not to dis disseminate that information. That, <laughs> but they... Yeah, they want to make you a, a, an addict, basically. You know, it's the same same reason that the toys that the toys are given away in, in the McDonald's, right? The yeah. So this is one of the most advanced strategies of ownership design. Is what is something that Jim and I call tolerated theft. Um, and when, when we when we ask our students, like how many, our our law students, how many of you illegally are um, using somebody else's password for HBO or Netflix, they all say yes, law students. And it turns out that it's actually a crime. You can go to jail for it. But HBO and lose your license. But you know, H and HBO could find out who you are, and they absolutely don't. And just the opposite, they actually want you stealing their content. That's all they have to sell. But they have discovered that tolerated theft is a very valuable strategy for customer acquisition. Jim and I had an article in the, in the Harvard Business Review uh, last week, where we wrote about exactly this argument, the sort of advanced strategies of ownership engineering uh, that very savvy companies like HBO and Netflix use. Actually, Netflix over the weekend just started cracking down on password sharing. I hope they didn't read our HBR article. <laughs> um, it's a sort of Heisenberg uncertainty principle of like social theory, which is you write about it and you change it. Um, but it, but it, is, it is interesting. They're doing it very tentatively because the music industry, uh, when it shut down Napster a generation ago, 
really pissed off a generation of young people who became more committed to pirating. Um, so HBO, I think, has the better strategy here, which is um, as young people sort of share passwords, it builds buzz for the shows. It builds, as you said, um, and as the president of HBO said, it builds video addicts, um, which is very valuable to HBO. Um, well, it's interesting in this, in this pandemic year where, where people have had a lot more time uh, to, to uh, watch. The, you mentioned how the pirates will always uh, you know, get better at, at what they're doing, too. You, you could imagine someone saying, well, now I have this year and I have this password. So for free, I'm going to watch every, as much HBO content as possible. And I'll, I'll never have to watch HBO again because I'll have watched everything. <laughs> but, so that I, you don't become an addict. You, 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 you've sucked it dry. Yeah, but I mean that's but the, the the beauty of HBO is that you know they keep coming with new new uh, new things. I mean, so for instance, you know while you were watching a reality show with the with the, the step you know with the the step siblings, I was watching WandaVision, right? I mean there are always new series that are that are coming along, and the idea is we're going to hook you on being an HBO loyal consumer, and as you get wealthier in time, the idea is you know this isn't entirely kosher, and the hope is in time you'll actually you'll actually get a password of your own. And, and, and feel that you owe them, you, you feel obligated, right? Um, so I don't think this was in your book, uh, but um, what about the whole split of the who owns what on the content right now? Because uh, you know, it used to be that they had all these contracts with the cable uh, TV companies, but now that live streaming is available, everybody wants to grab their content back and own it and then live stream it to, you know, like, like you have Disney Plus now and so on and so forth. So that you can dump your cable and have two or three of these services and that's it. Well, I don't know if that's your experience. What I'm discovering is that I still have my cable and I have seven or eight of these services. I'm actually paying more bills than I ever did. Um, and that's actually a trend. Part of what's interesting in, in, the, in the media space is I have these sort of uh, generational transitions uh, for, for how media is delivered. You, had, you know, when I was growing up, there was the test pattern in the middle of the night. I remember, you remember the test pattern. And then you had a, you know, a handful of stations and that, that went away. Um, and now we have this sort of uh, explosion of streaming services. And pretty soon, I'm going to get impatient with paying seven or eight bills. And there will be some reconsolidation re down to a manageable, manageable number. But what's interesting about that from an ownership perspective, uh, about the people grabbing their content back, um, is that um, it's another example of gridlock, which is that you have multiple rights holders on any show. You know, the third bassoonist in the orchestra that plays in the background needs to be reapproached if you're going to have uh, the show reemerge from the vault of MGM and put back on the air on any of these services. Actually, licensing what's called, what's called clearing rights in the trade is actually quite complicated. And a lot of the content that I grew up with and you grew up with uh, is still locked away because they can't haven't been able to clear the rights. Well, you, you talked about it briefly, but um, why don't you explain ASCAP and and, and how they solved this uh, problem for you know these tiny little micro things before they had computers to do it all. Sure. So, um, so in the radio, in the radio play area, um, say you are a little radio station in, you know, Des Moines. Um, uh, do, you play a bunch of songs. How do you how do you pay those songwriters for using their copyrights, both the performance copyright and the music copyright? How do you how do you actually make that payment? It turns out to be really hard to do. If you had to negotiate with every songwriter for every song you wanted to play, you hear like "Let It Be" a thousand times, and nothing else, because you could like negotiate with them and be done. Although, actually, the Beatles is particularly. Which would be okay, but actually that's a bad example because the Beatles are actually particularly complicated to negotiate around. So what ASCAP and BMI do, we have, or what we have is something called copyright clearinghouses. And what they do is they, radio stations, uh, Spotify, Pandora, 
uh, a, a, the bar that you go and listen to music in, karaoke bars, they basically put a list at the end of the year of all the songs that they've played. They send it into a clearinghouse and they get sent a bill for the flat rate per song. You know, billions come in and then those clearinghouses send a check. You know, your song got played 800,000 times and here's a check for what, you know, the amount that you get for that. So the clearinghouses basically are uh, a space in between uh, the people who are the creators and the people who are the listeners. And instead of having them negotiate and basically have gridlock, have the inability to negotiate, what we have in America is a um, your ownership of the copyright turns into a fixed mandatory licensing fee for radio play. So there's no negotiation. And a zero negotiation world turns out to be a one that's actually much more, uh, makes culture much more available. That's actually the same, that's actually the solution that would be the right solution for the, something we talked about earlier with Henrietta Lacks and Moore, the guy with a spleen that was taken out and tortured for years by those UCLA doctors. Um, uh, the solution there would be a mandatory licensing scheme, just like we use for radio play. That would basically say, we're not going to block science. We're not going to tie scientists up in negotiation, but we're going to give a small mandatory amount to people who actually provide the human material from their bodies that becomes the next polio vaccine, which is what came from Henrietta Lacks's, uh, Henrietta Sklut's, um body. So it's possible to actually solve those conflicts using really innovative ownership design. Well, I'd like to talk directly to the audience. If you have any questions for uh, Jim or for Michael, you know, you can send them in. Um, we have about 10 minutes left, maybe five. And uh, the, the other element of uh, the book that I wanted to talk about, besides, you know, you, you have all these good examples, is uh, I've always found it fascinating. You know, people have no idea what's really going on in the world unless they read the business section about the same things that they like. Because uh, there's all these business deals that make everything run, um, and people are are often totally unaware of them, um, and it it makes it. Uh, you're, you're, you have all kinds of examples of what was really going on. What was the what was the theory? What was the practice going on behind, and why we ended up with what we've ended up with, in terms of our of our cultural society. Um, and I had a, a a more personal question for you, Jim. You're you're a split between environmental law and and uh, and working at the law school and property. Um, what came first, and and how did you decide for a split like that? That's a very interesting combination. Yeah, so uh, I'm I'm a tree hugger, uh, so that uh, that always came first. <laughs> I worked for the Fish and Wildlife Service before I went to law school, uh, and really uh, I didn't think much about property. Certainly, when I took property in law school, no one mentioned the environment. Uh, and essentially, sort of what I've seen as as property um, environmental protection has advanced over the last two, three decades is environmentalists have realized property rights really matter. Uh, and if you want to solve these problems, you better focus on ownership and not simply regulating that shalt and thou shalt not. Um, and, and so that's really I mean, that's that's where, the, in my view, that's where the cutting edge environmental policy is right now. Yeah, I was going to say to, to me, you know, what, in thinking about politics more than, than the pro just the property part of it, what incentives you set up is really what you're going to end up with uh, 30 years later. And then being clever about your incentives is actually the crucial thing for making democracy work in the, in the future. And it was absolutely crucial for making America work in the, in the beginning, the incentives that were built into the system and the blocks and passages. So, uh, Michael, how did the two of you start working together on this? Because, you know, people... Well, we, both of us love to co-author and we had, Jim had written a book, a great book, um, which actually your listeners should, should look up. It's called Drinking Water, A History, about the history of drinking water in America, uh, literally, quite the title is well, well named. And so it's a great read. 
Um, and he was looking around to do um, a new tr a popular book, a book that basically is meant for people to pick up on an airplane or read on the beach or give to, you know, give to, give to their family members. For, for, um, and I, I had done the same thing. I had written a book called The Gridlock Economy, talking about some of these ownership gridlock issues. And I was also in the, sort of trying to think, like, what's, you know, what's the next thing I want to write? Uh, both Jim and I have been teaching for decades, and we've taught you know, thousands and thousands of students, and we realized, both of us, that um, part of the sort of privilege that we have as professors is, is to be able to think about how do we speak very plainly and simply? How do we reach an audience beyond just the people who are the people that we're teaching in our classes? We've both written so many academic articles, and we wanted to have a, a way to reach beyond that. We were friends from the uh, environmental um, talk circuit, I guess, early on. And Jim actually approached uh, Jim. Jim approached me. He was like he um, a friend of his that suggested to him, you know, maybe it's time to have a book like Freakonomics about Freakonomics is about how incentives steer us around. Uh, uh, books like Predictably Irrational and Nudge are about how cognitive biases steer us around. But neither the economics nor the psychology books uh, take seriously uh, how ownership really works. They sort of take ownership as a sort of on-off switch. And we thought, you know, but there should be a book that's fun and surprising and counterintuitive and infuriating with the same kinds of stories that are going to help people see how the world around them really works, how ownership works like a remote control, how businesses and governments are steering you um, all day long in every part of your life uh, in order to do what they want using this very few handful of ownership stories. So once Jim uh, came to me with that as a, as a, let's think about doing that, it was like, oh my God, of course, like this is how I want to spend the next few years. And we've spent the last, and it's been over five years now, basically auditioning stories. Like st stories come in and, and they're like, I want to be in your book. Like, I'm a cool story. I'm fun. And it's like, no, 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 you're not like counterintuitive enough or infuriating enough or fun enough. So the stories that are left, the ones that we actually have in the book are ones that we feel like, you know, everyone can relate to. This is like something that happens all around us every day. And the, 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 what it's been like writing together has been trading drafts back and forth and being on Zoom calls really uh, for years now, uh, basically arguing about, fighting about, sort of enjoying, um, is this a really fun story? And then taking turns writing it back and forth. It's a super fun way to, to be a professor is to both um, to have the ability to work together in this very close way and to work together over something where it's like, we're both really passionate about this stuff. I don't know if it comes across. I hope it does in this talk. Absolutely, absolutely, and, and I, I Again, what you said about the stories is absolutely true. And I, that the John Moore story is so infuriating, but at the same time, you can get to the law and say, but how else is the law going to deal with this? And, and you make great examples. But the story, just imagining the, this guy thinking he's being treated and, and having a, the professor, I mean, the, the, the doctor at, at UCLA. You didn't get in any trouble writing that about a doctor from UCLA, did you? Uh, where, where you work, yeah. <laughs> um, and and what's also interesting, I think, to, to non-lawyers, I mean, a lot of people think lawyers are just, uh, you know, so process-oriented and rules and stuff like is that if you just say about the environment, all right, everybody stop polluting, uh, nothing happens, you know. If you say, you know, I, I, I think, for example, uh, when you think, you know, uh, the big moral issues of, of humanity and culture, People have given us really big issues of how to do something. If you're all just better, we can change this. But, but actually, if you put the right incentive in place, it changes. And it hasn't changed for thousands of years being exhorted to change things. Um, and just like the idea of poverty, you know, that, that we should do something about poverty. Well, 
5,000 years ago, if someone had said, you know, what we could use is like a, like not really out and out greed, but just a kind of dimmed down version of greed, uh, then we probably would have been out of this long, long ago, um, that we would have been out of, out of the poverty long ago, because we just used it in India and China and a couple hundred million people in 30 years moved, moved out of poverty. Um, and of course, it needs to be fine-tuned, needs, but those incentives make such a big difference. So, so what's your, let's, let's take what each of you pick, what's your favorite incentive that you think isn't in place that you think would change things? Sure. Well, if the, I think the most important piece uh, that I've learned in writing this book um, is, is the framing that we have, which is that there are just this very, very small number of stories. And usually if you're in some ownership conflict or you see some ownership dilemma, you see why on earth are people polluting? Why are the lines this long? What's going on here? There's usually a very simple ownership story behind it. Now, when I, and, I, and a lot of our readers, but part of what's been fun about having, talking about this book out in, in to various audiences is when we hear back from readers, they say, oh my God, I just saw, I just understood like I was just talking to one of our, um, an interviewer earlier today is like, I just understand why people draw chalk lines on the 4th of July parade route in this town in Iowa where this interview was. I now I get it. They're trying to save the space and it's the language of possession. Things just snap into focus in your life when you see there's just this very small handful of stories. So that's, for me, that's the, really the biggest contribution that I want people to see. You know, you open the newspaper today, there's gonna be a bunch of headlines. You walk down the street today, there's gonna be a bunch of instances in your daily life that all turn on just these very few rules of ownership. And once you see them, you can actually begin to do something about them. So that's the piece I think that's for me most exciting is the notion that this is really very much more under our control as parents, as a parent, um, as a consumer, and, 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 and for some of these issues as a citizen, to really take back control of the remote control of ownership in your life. Yeah, yeah you so, many great, so many great stories about, about the people, how they save spaces and don't space spaces, and, and what works in one city and doesn't work in another city, but I'll let people read that. Go ahead, Jim. Yeah, that's chapter two. I mean, I'd I, I sort of reinforce what Michael said. I mean, I don't know how many of you have seen The Matrix. This is a wonderful scene when Neo kind of leans back and all of a sudden, everything turns to ones and zeros, and he just sort of sees how it all fits together. And as Michael said, if you look, if you start looking for ownership, things just make a lot of sense all of a sudden. Uh, and so, I mean, what I would sort of say, I'd reinforce what Michael said, and I'd amplify that by saying also, ownership is up for grabs. It's always up for grabs. There is no natural, correct answer for who gets what. In realizing it's up for grabs, that allows you to start to change things or to see how things can be changed. Do not take things as given, right? If you look for ownership, you'll see where the rule lies, which story is dominant. But I promise you, there's always another of those six ownership stories that are also valid. Yeah, that's something that I, I changed to uh, the, uh, the you know, seventh commandment uh, 30, 40 years ago, uh, where it says, thou shalt not steal. And I said, you know, thou shalt steal because this will keep you all impoverished forever. And that's the way I meant you to be. <laughs> and what you're basically saying is uh, that if you see the incentives and you see what we're doing and you say it's up for grabs, we can cooperate, figure out a way to do this, figure out a way to put incentives in place. Um, just like parenting you were talking about. I mean, it's like good parenting. You, you, you bring out the best in the children. You can't change the children, but you can bring out the best with good incentives and you can, you can bring out the worst with bad incentives. So. Thank you very much, both of you gentlemen. That was really a lot of fun.
um, which is very rare about legal time. <laughs> it's really fun to be with you guys tonight. This is so much fun. Thank you. Good. So ends another event in the Commonwealth Club's 119 years of enlightened discussion. Thank you again, Michael and Jim, for joining us. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.